This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Renee Garfinkel, your host on the New Books Network, with the Van Leer Jerusalem series on ideas. Subscribe to the Van Leer series on Apple, Spotify, and everywhere you find your podcasts. I'm pleased to welcome Umit Kurt to the show today to talk about his new book, Armenians of Ain Tab, The Economics of Genocide in an Ottoman Province. Umit Kurt is a Polanski Fellow at the Van Leer Jerusalem Institute and an Australian Research Council Fellow. His books, published in both Turkish and English, include The Spirit of the Laws, The Plunder of Wealth in the Armenian Genocide. Umid Kurt, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me today. Umid, the subtitle of your book, The Economics of Genocide, is a chilling phrase. Why do you believe economics to have been the primary motivator for the Turkish mass murder of Armenians? Um, actually, it was one of the uh, important motivations for the perpetrators, the active participant of this collective violence event. Um, the prospect of loot, particularly, incentivize local collaborators to support massacres and deportations. And realizing this, this, this potential, uh, the Committee of Union and Progress, the Ottoman ruling government, who carried out the Armenian genocide in 1915 and 1918, political leadership deliberately instrumentalized the promise of spoil and plunder to cajole public participation. And the central government was well aware of the fact that um, provincial notables, local landowners, and bigwigs, officials, and a range of, range of uh, other people with vested interests tried to take possession of Armenian wealth. So these actors found themselves in a fortuitous position. Uh, not only did their actions fulfill the ideological requirements of the regime, but these actions also brought material gain in the form of expropriated and pillaged Armenian properties. So these factors in combination serve to catalyze further the persecution of Armenians. Therefore, what I call is reward mechanism, which was created by which the CUP government could draw political and social support for decisions to deport and massacre Armenians. The profiters justify their confiscation and seizure of Armenian wealth not as a robbery or plunder, but as a fair reward for their participation in the elimination of harmful and treacherous elements in their eyes. Um, 
thus beyond base greed, this fervor with uh, which they executed the genocide on the local level must be understood in part as a result of the rationalization that they were acting in the service of the Ottoman state as well. Uh-huh. So you needed both the ideological basis and the economic motivation. Is that what you're saying? Yes. These two factors, uh, most of the time, over the course of persecution of Armenians, both physically, economically, and politically, went hand in hand in the whole whole process. Um, now, when you use the word genocide... Do you mean it in the original sense, that is, the campaign to annihilate an entire race or ethnic group and erase its culture? Because today it's often used more loosely uh, than it was when the word was coined, uh, and it often is used to mean something more ambiguous. It's a wonderful question, actually, and which backs for... Uh, um, analytical exploration in the field of uh, genocide studies in, in general and in the field of Armenian genocide studies in particular. Um, I use the word genocide as a phenomenon and concept coined by Raphael Lemkin to explain various aspects of the destruction of a community a nation, a group of people, or religious group. It can be a religious group, it can be a national group, it can be ethno-religious group, or it can be a race, and so forth. In the case of Armenian genocide, I am also inviting scholars to revisit and re-evaluate to apply the notion of genocide coined by Raphael Lemkin. Uh, because in my book, I am not only explaining and analyzing Armenian genocide by solely concentrating on physical destruction of these people. Besides that, and more importantly, I am trying to show how genocide was executed, carried out, carried out by the Ottoman government, the CUP, and also active participation of, of local elites and bigwigs and ordinary Muslims by focusing on property confiscation. Not only physical elimination of these people, but how their economic walks of life were erased and removed, which made them actually de uh, in a destitute position, especially in the deportation roads. These people, Armenians, who were deported and who were forcibly gotten out of their homes and put, uh, put in the deportation, deportation caravans and roads, they uh, were left penniless even to corrupt the so-called security guards on the deportation roads. So the rationale for the removal of Armenians was that the group posed a threat of rebellion, although that was the rationale. My book shows that that's the reason why the prospect of material gain was a key motivator of support for the Armenian genocide among the local Muslim gentry and Turkish Republic. Well, did the Armenians pose a, a threat to the government? Were they... Uh, were there rebellious groups within them? And could they have escaped uh, death and confiscation of their property by converting to Islam? Um, 
Aintab, in the case of Aintab, let's say, I think your question, we should, uh, in, in order to answer your pro- properly answer your question, we should look at the regional, regional variations. We should look at case by case and region by region, district by district. Uh, in the case of Aintab, I intentionally picked this city where I was born and grown up, uh, is that Armenians and Muslims, including Kurds, Arabs, Turks, Circassian, Caucasians, and so on and so forth, these people lived, relatively speaking, in an Armenian's way until a certain time period especially until 1890-95, when the the Hamidian massacres took place in the town. Armenian community, of course, was politicized in the late 19th century, especially. And this politicization politicization was a result of various various, uh, reasons and historical factors. Uh, But this politicization also occurred the politicization of other groups, including Muslims. So Armenians, at some point in 1915, were regarded as the fifth column, as enemy, even enemy alien citizens. And the slaughter and the plunder followed a deliberated and declared intent on the part of local perpetrators who were assisted in their deadly campaign by the Ottoman central authorities. So while the pattern of destruction remained locally determined, the central government provided the overall context that allowed for sustained human rights abuses and crime against humanity. In the case of Aintab, a suitable sociopolitical atmosphere was created through the relentless efforts of the Muslim elites to lobby the central authorities to deport Armenians, whose deportation these elites then facilitate in return for obtaining the Armenians' abundant material riches. And during 1915, these elites propagandized against Armenians, presenting them spuriously as a rebellious threat, as had been done previously in 1895, as I have just pointed out. So the seizure and transfer of Armenian property under under girded popular support for the deportation and ultimate elimination of their fellow citizens. So Armenians had constituted the middle and upper middle class of the Ainta population, and they had predominated in manufacturing, agricultural production, and interregional trade. Therefore, their expulsion was a moment for opportunity for the bandits who robbed Armenians of their personal belongings on the road, and especially for Aintab's Muslim elites who seized the assets and properties the Armenians left behind. Conversion certainly took place in the city. Some Armenians, a very limited number of Armenians in the city uh, were, uh, I don't want to use the word choice or uh, preference, but they were forced to get converted to Islam in order to get away with deportation order. And that way they managed to secure some of their properties, not the whole entire amount of their wealth. So converted Armenians' properties were even subject to confiscation and seizure as well. So what I'm trying to say is that conversion was not kind of a final outlet for Armenians 
to 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 be uh, to to keep themselves away from deportation and other harsh measures. That sounds similar to what happened uh, in the Inquisition in the Middle Ages uh, when the Catholic Church uh, took the property of the infidels. And uh, conversion seemed like a way out, but uh, not completely. Um, Umint, you're Turkish. And as I understand that the Armenian genocide is still a controversial topic in Turkey, uh, whose current government, current Islamist government, denies that it took place at all and is quite a repressive government. I, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, that right now Turkey has more uh, academics and journalists in prison than any other country. Is, and I'm not sure that's correct, but I read that somewhere. Um, at any rate, my real question is, have you experienced any personal repercussions to this study and the publication of the book? Um, I would talk about um, a, few, a few pushbacks, let's see, over the course of my research in the first place and then after the publication of my book. Um, so especially while conducting my research in local archives and libraries in Gaziantep, so modern-day, modern, the modern-day Gaziantep. So I face with uh, local administrative uh, hurdles, let's say, and this 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 professor Hakan Yavuz in the University of Utah, so allegedly working for Turkish government under their payroll, sent me a few slender emails because of nature and content of work I was doing. Same guy sent letters to the Gaziantep governorship and asked it to ban me from entering local archives and libraries in the city. And another fellow. Man, another native of Aintab, late Hassan Jalal Guzel, who was a former minister of education, youth, and sport, and he was a deputy in the Turkish parliament, also initiated a smear campaign against me and exerted strenuous efforts to prevent me from doing my research in the city. And since my research and later book proved and documented that uh, many family members became affluent and constitute new bourgeois or elite class of the Sydney, the Republican period, by seizing properties and lands of Armenians and many prominent families and their descendants especially made uh, certain attempts to impede me. Uh, and, 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 and I receive uh, a couple of, I mean, preposterous, let's say, emails from descendants of the, these families and and then threatening me and swearing me and um, saying all these bad words and threatening me to open a lawsuit against me and stuff like that, and that in that that also in a way shows I kind of disturb by telling the the the, the telling telling the, uh, the 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 narrative the real story itself. Which has been forgotten, and which has supposed, which was supposed to be forgotten, in their in their eyes. So uh, these are the major hurdles I have received up until now. Let's say, but no physical threats and no threats from the government. 
I I am sure I am in the blacklist of government, but uh, thank God I haven't received any physical threat and so forth. And I must say that I was quite comfortable to work in the prime ministerial Ottoman archives, which is based in Istanbul. And, and I only had a few hardships and difficulties while doing my research in my hometown itself. And also, maybe uh, I should give you this recent uh, incident which happened to me like uh, almost a month ago. I was back home in Eintop, so I uh, paid my family a visit and, and I uh, went to Papyrus Cafe, you know, you know the story in my book, in the in the introduct in the foreword of the book. I mean, the Papyrus Cafe, which was an Armenian uh, house owned by honor, uh, Iran Iranian honorary consul Nazar Nazarian, and and you know the whole story of mine started when I happened to learn this house was an Armenian, what belonged to an Armenian, and it was converted into a coffee shop and so forth. So I. I used to go to this, this this coffee shop all the time, and I was quite welcome all the time. But last month, I I visit the coffee shop to meet a friend of mine. When I was in the coffee shop, the owner of of, of the place really really cast uh, a doubtful and eyes on me, and the other employers of him they kind of. I mean, let's say the, I, I, I saw I saw the anger and indignation in their eyes and their their gestures and so forth. I was for for the first time over the course of my research for the first time I really uh, I was really terrified. I felt the trepidation, and and so I was uh, about to leave the place immediately, but uh, employees of the owner they were trying to approach me. And uh, the Kurdish people in the same coffee shop, they they also know my work and they are supportive of my work. They are interested in my work. You know, these Kurdish guys, young guys, they kind of protected me, let's say. They invited me to sit with them and, and have tea with them. And they kind of, you know, circle me against these guys, these guys, employees and, and so forth. So I was, let's say, off the hook, so to speak. And now I felt really for the first time this, uh, this, this kind of, I mean, uh, let's say fear or worrisome, uh, most importantly. And then I realized really to work and do, uh, do, do, do research or write a book, an article on this subject matter is getting more and more difficult in Turkey uh, because the polit- because of the political situation, as you have just pointed out, it's extremely bleak and grim, and 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 uh, and, and this this uh, repressive atmosphere is really really getting aggravated day by day in the country, uh, unfortunately. Yeah, I'm sorry to hear that. Uh, let, let's move back in time. You you did give us some historical and regional context. Um, it was a time then the world was in turmoil, World War I. Uh, uh, well, I'll let you answer it. Uh, how, how would you say the uh, Ottoman Empire's campaign against the Armenians, and I might add other minorities as well, during the First World War, how was it different from the persecution of minorities in other countries at that time? Or was it not different? Sure. 
it's it's I think it's an important question in order to contextualize what happened what uh, what happened to Armenians. I mean, what kind of violence was inflicted upon uh, the Armenians, and 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 which was affected by this global uh, dynamic of violence at that time. First of all, the Ottoman Empire's participation in World War One included a major campaign aimed at eliminating certain minorities. First and foremost, Armenians, Greeks, and Assyrian Assyrian population entirely as well. And, and these minorities were depicted by the CUP regime and Muslim society as dangerous and treacherous domestic enemies. And this campaign led Armenians to be subjected to wartime mass deportation, internment, total extermination, and expropriation. However, the Ottoman Empire was by no means the only state to take measures against its own citizens. Both central and allied powers um, carried out brutal policies against domestic political suspects and enemy aliens during the years 1914-1918. For example, Russia's campaign against its enemy citizens quickly widened in scope to include the empire's large population of ethnic Germans, Russian subject Jews, Muslims, and and others, and the Poles uh, as well, of course. Yet, only in one state, the Ottoman Empire, did this dynamic of destruction get pushed as far as genocide. In others, including Austria-Hungary, um, to the, 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 the quest for military security had murderous rather than genocidal consequences. So pursuing this global dynamic of violence during the Great War, the Committee of Union and Progress Party's campaign resulted in the forced displacement of more than a million civilians, the nationalization of a substantial portion of the imperial economy, and the transfer of extensive lands, assets, and properties from the targeted minorities, Armenians, Greeks, and Assyrians, to favored groups. Historically, um, few governments formally took measures in times of war against their own subjects, you know. Uh, however, as 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 uh, renowned historian Eric, Eric Lore underscores, World War One introduced systematic and brutal measures against enemy citizens and other civilians. Measures that proliferated both during and after World War Two. One cornerstone cornerstone of wartime wartime campaign against Armenians in the Ottoman Empire was the confiscation of their properties and wealth which were subsequently transferred to Muslim elites and used in reshaping the domestic economy as well as covering wartime expenses. Uh, There were among um, the radical practices of the CUP regime aimed at nationalizing the economy. First, many businesses and properties were transferred to state institutions. Second, a lesser but substantial number of firms were transferred to reliable Muslim individuals and social institutions. Exactly the same process occurred in Tsarist Russia against the enemy alien citizens, the category which was created by 
Russian, Russian Empire by the Tsar to create a kind of ethnicity regimes. And all these nationalizing state policies were carried out uh, in, in the Tsarist Russia uh, as well. More significant than the transfers themselves was the fact that these extraordinary measures belong to a set of laws, regulations, rules, and degrees that created so-called a legal basis for a more systematic campaign against the movable and immobile properties of Armenians. Exactly in this context, I am trying, I am substantiating the notion of genocide. I am applying the notion of genocide to this process rather than on solely focusing on physical elimination or performance of physical violence in the deportation roads or also in the concentration camps against the Armenians. On the other hand, I am systematically and meticulously analyzing the legal rules and regulation and bureaucratic mechanisms which culminated in the destruction of Armenians uh, and totally obliterate economic walks of life of this, this population. And so that's how you're distinguishing murderous versus genocidal. Absolutely. Okay. In, in the book, you use words like plunder and spoils, words that are, for me, at least this one reader, evocative of ancient battles rather than mm-hmm. modern times. Yeah. If, uh, if plunder, well, greed, was critical in mobilizing local participation in the Armenian genocide, do you believe or do you know whether they were similarly whether it, greed, was similarly pivotal in other 20th century genocides in Asia, Cambodia, uh, in Rwanda and Africa, and of course on an incomparable scale, the European Holocaust? I think um, there are similar patterns and also convergences uh, between these mass violence events, as genocide, including the Holocaust, uh, greed is one of those patterns, and and also plunder and spoil uh, the same. I think these kind of patterns can be observed in in almost uh, most of the mass 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 crimes, as you have mentioned, and and in. In the case of uh, Armenian genocide and, and, and Aintab as how the local version of Armenian genocide, uh, I mean, took place, um, we see two, uh, I mean, we see a kind of a dual track mechanism, uh, which means the following. Plunder and spoil and, let's say, uh, confiscation and liquidation of Armenian mobile and immobile properties under the veneer of legality went in tandem as well. So on the one hand, at the local level, at the periphery, Ottoman periphery in Asia Minor, uh, there were huge plunder and spoil incidents happening, which were uncontrolled by the Ottoman government. And they also condone those violent acts in order to get support and consent of these ordinary people. Most and for, of course, local elites, provisional notables as well, as well, but also 
also the mass support which they 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 uh, 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 urgently needed in order to carry out this mass violent event because uh, this promise of economic power rallied active support for participation in micro policy operated by the CUP that aimed to annihilate all of Turkey's Armenians. And in fact, it was the drive for material gain that led administrative, political, local, and civil actors to pragmatically engage in the eradication of Armenians more actively than the central authorities. And more important, property theft and material benefits acquired from the victims were an important means of of further binding the beneficiaries to one another and the CUP regime itself. As early as March 1915, Eintop's provincial notables, for example, and landowners, as well as municipal officials and other bigwigs, were casting covetous eyes on our main property. And Istanbul government was well aware of these desires. So in order to fulfill its policy of destruction, the Committee of Union and Progress in the party was required to make concessions. So therefore, one could argue that what motivated urban Muslim Aintab notables to join the CUP and take part in its genocidal policies was self-interest rather than a shared ideology. But I'm not, I'm, not say, I'm not here saying ideology does not play a role in the destruction of Armenians. But much of the implementation was enacted by local elites and the Muslim population at large out of a base desire to plunder the assets and property of Armenian community instead of uh, the generally assumed ideological pressure and, and encouragements of the political center. I think this aspect is quite uh, uh, conspicuous in other mass violence events, especially Cambodia, you know, Holocaust, and uh, the localized, I mean, the local version of Holocaust, especially in Eastern Europe. I think the noteworthy historians, Omer Bartov's recent work on Buchaj is a very, very good example to substantiate what I have just, you know, mentioned. Now, now you've mentioned the term local elites and notables uh, a few times in in our conversation, and you write about their role very much in your book. Um, but I, I'd like you to talk a little bit about what does the term local elites mean in the Aintab or, or more generally the Turkish context, and how does it compare to the social structure of other Muslim societies. I mean, elite, every culture, I believe, has its elites, but they're not always the same. So talk about that a little bit. Who are the elites or were? Sure. Um, so this, this concept, the concept of local or, or provincial elites, so it's, it's central to my understanding of the elite-making process, first and foremost. The term provincial elites is generally associated with Ayan, notables, I mean, who held a, a dominant place in the Ottoman provinces beginning in the late 17th century. Political, social, and economic power was the defining feature of these provincial elites, predominantly Muslims. Not only did they include 
members of the military, the learned institutions, institutions dedicated to education, religious personnel, administrative staff, and artisans, but they also occasionally consisted of dervish sheikhs, you know, just religious leaders, women, and even non-Muslims. So they could facilitate the implementation of government policies and guarantee relative order in the provinces. In turn, state acknowledgement or government um, um, uh, appointment enhance these local, local notables' prestige and authority. Local notables with some political power comprise of more modest families. These ayan, ayan families, I mean the notables, had um, more in common with contemporary patriciates in Europe than the military magnates of the Ottoman realm. So the participation of the local populace in that sense, in robbing their Armenian neighbors, is seen as the product of an incre- increasing radicalization and loss of uh, restraint, resulting from the break- breakdown of social ties among these, you know, uh, Muslim elites and the non-Muslim population of the city and also the empire itself along ethnic, religious, and, and, and economic, economic lies, lines. So these features of ions or notables or provincial elites distinguish themselves from, uh, from other Muslim subjects or citizens of the empire. And these elites were quite functional and operational and active in terms of galvanizing and provoking and spearheading ordinary Muslims. They used and manipulated and provoked the rage and indignation of Muslim population, Muslim people, Arabs, Kurds, Turks, and so forth, through the channel of violence, which was inflicted upon Armenians in a, in a, under ripe circumstances in the city. First, uh, first eruption of this violence took place in November 1895 under the reign of Abdulhamid II. Uh, the Hamidian massacres, which lasted three days in the city, took place. And, uh, and in 1915, this violence showed itself as shocking waves. And what we, we, we see in Ayintab in 1915 was not only an outbreak of a sudden and, and you know, violence like pogroms, but what we see is a tether, tethers of violence and the various and manifold aspects of violence uh, was taking place in the city in 1915. Now, of course, violence becomes more likely once it happens. So uh, there was the background of 1895. Uh, But when you come to 1915, if if I understood your book correctly, the, the central government's plan was to deport the Armenians and steal their property. Was there an inflection point, uh, or an idea that happened? And how did that policy of deportation 
develop into mass violence? Um, from 1895 until 1915, let's say, Muslims and Armenians of Ainta, who had previously coexisted in relative harmony, so they turned against one another uh, with the former committing inconceivable acts against the latter. So, um, in my work, the lens through which intercommunal and state minority relations are weaved is primarily an economic one. But in a broad sense of that term, with political economy entailing law, commerce, property relations, and socioeconomic tensions, economic rivalries were overladen on ethno-religious hierarchies in the late 19th century in Ainta. So the belief among members of the dominant nation that the normative social order was being gravely upset was shaped by the nationalization of the Armenian nation under the modernizing influence of a burgeoning Armenian middle class. An international pressure for reforms to ensure the rights of and protection for Armenians seemed to confirm this impression. So 1895 massacres featured extensive plunder of Aintaparmenes too, which was an integral step in restoring the hierarchy that the mass massacres uh, augured. Important members of Aintap's urban Muslim elite, clergy, and local government were implicated in scapegoating Armenians and in cheerleadering the killing. More so, it appears, uh, than Abdulhamid II's central regime. So, the same elites joined the local CUP branch in the second constitutional period in 1908, which at once safeguarded their social power, gave them influence in the new ruling regime, and gave, to, gave the CEP a, a kind of conduit into local affairs. Although this period at first appeared to create a sense of calm by placing both committees on an equal level, ethnic tensions soon re-emerged. Different segments of Muslim community in Aintab were deeply disturbed by their perception that the restoration of the constitution mainly favored Armenians. So this so-called equality further exacerbated feelings of resentment toward the Armenians of the city as the Ottoman Empire continued to decline politically and economically. In turn, ethno-economic identities became dangerously pronounced and bred more violence, which ultimately erupted in Adana in, in, and its outskirts in 1909, for, for, for instance. The Adana massacres proved how fragile the values of the Young Turk Revolution were and consequently created a general atmosphere of insecurity, leading to general mobilization and ultimately deportations, uh, deportations in Aintab. Once the deportations began, Aintab gentry were well positioned to appropriate Armenian goods, properties, and businesses, either directly or uh, via the good offices of the abandoned property commissions and liquidation commissions, indirectly through the state. The CUP functionaries of Aintab, including Ali Jenani, a prominent landowner and the local elite, District Governor Ahmed Vaik Bey and Bulashikzade Mufti Arif Efendi, a general secretary of the local CUP branch in the city, people in good standing with them and war veterans were those most likely to receive monies, businesses, 
and properties or to lease them for nominal fees in turn transform those people into capitalists. Mm. So by taking up the cause of the CUP and the ethnic Turkish nationalism, the leading families of Aintal, Cenanizade, Mennanzade, Tahçizade, Istırapzade, Daizade, Kethudazade, Göğüş, Battalzade, Hacı Azade families and so forth, secured their control over the local CUP organization and parliamentary representation for the city. So these individuals were far from the only beneficiaries, direct perpetrators of the massacres, often had their own pecuniary motives. So um, viewing the entirety of the process, the function of appropriation was as important as the individual purposes. Huge numbers of people were bound together in a circle of profit that was at the same time a circle of complicity. Yeah, complicated, many strains fused together to result in this uh, outcome. Uh, What did you mean when you wrote, and you say it in the name of another scholar, Raphael Lemkin, who, as you mentioned, coined the term genocide after World War II, that um, genocide is both a process of destruction and a process of construction. Yeah. Um, it's another significant question uh, in in the literature of mass violence and which has been discussing in the state of art so far. I I should highlight one point maybe. So killing and even murdering other people, terrorizing, humiliating, dehumanizing, causing harm to them, is not just destructive. For those who perpetuate violence and terror, it's creative and rewarding. Why? Because it generates a social dynamic. Perpetrators and bystanders energize social life and build collective identity through committing genocide. Desire for community, the experience of belonging, and the ethos of collectivity became the basis of mass murder. We should vividly see this aspect in the case of Holocaust, and especially the participation of different sections of society in destruction of uh, Jews, especially in Eastern Europe. In the same way, as well as eradicating the Armenian community, deportation was a means of... um, reorienting the Muslim population to a new ideological identity more than enriching individual perpetrators. Plunder was a way of rewarding the the, the, the quote-unquote reliable resourcing immigrants and refugees in order to properly integrate them and creating a Turkish Muslim bourgeoisie as a driver of national modernization in a Darwinian world of struggle. Hmm. In a, in a recent public presentation, uh, conversation, um, you said, quote, violence produces ethnic conflict, especially in the Middle East. Talk about that. What did you mean? Yeah. Um, actually, I borrowed this uh, term or argumentation from uh, another important scholar and historian, Laura Robson. 
And, and I am entirely on the same page with her by arguing that. Um, so this, uh, especially in the Middle East and in the Ottoman Empire, which can be regarded under the same uh, geography, uh, within, within the same context, the, I mean, the conventional argument has, uh, has, has uh, for a long time argued that, you know, ethnic differences, uh, ethnic fault lines, ethno-religious, you know, rifts uh, create or cause or, gave, or give rise to violence, you know, in different parts of Middle East, in the case of Armenian genocide, in the case of Greek expulsion from the Asian literal cities of the Ottoman Empire in Asia Minor and so on and so forth. But the point is, uh, these people, e- either Muslims, Muslim or either Greek and Ottoman Assyrian, Ottoman Armenian and so forth, they used to live together in the same neighborhood. They were Breton with one another. And when they were living under, you know, uh, uh, calm and, and stable conditions and, and or circumstances, they kind of found a way of coexistence to live together for, for, for long term in the Ottoman Empire. Back then, these ethnic identities were not, uh, were not an identificator for them to delineate themselves as a social position, maybe an economic class, or in, in their position or place in the community. But when violence broke out, inter-ethnic strife and violence especially broke out, and then the same people start to define themselves as Kurd, as Arab, as Armenian, as Assyrian, as, as Protestant Armenian, as Catholic Armenian, and so on and so forth. So these kind of superficial and constructed ethnic and sectarian identities came into historical existence Immediately after the violence broke out, when the violence is on the ground, people start to define themselves in ethnic terms. So by saying violence produces ethnic fault lines, not the the other way around, I mean, I mean, I mean, actually, uh, actually that. So So we shouldn't forget the fact that collective paranoia and the fear, the climate of fear, uh, which are... Uh, are, are produced by 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 for, by by state by poli- by state by politicians by political elites, civil or military bureaucrats. Uh, these these atmosphere, uh, this par- this collective paranoia. It's like an industry. If as political elite you find a cost client to buy this, and then you know ethnic identifications, ethnic fault lines, ethno-religious identities, and so on and so forth. It, it, this, these kind of notions come into scene. It's like an industry. If it, it depends on demand and supply in, the, in, the, in, in society. So do you, would you say from the, that perspective that ethnic conflict is more likely to be a step on the road to genocide or something along that uh, continuum? Or is it more likely to get enacted like a war between nations? I would say 
it's one one of the episodes episodes within the whole process because as Rafael Lemkin kept saying genocide is a process and and it's it's a it, it's a social dynamics and and so forth so ethnic conflicts or ethnic cleansing let's say is one of the episodes of collective violence but that does not necessarily mean that ethnic violence or ethnic cleansing would immediately or automatically or organically turn into genocidal violence. These kind of events, especially in mass violence or collective violence incidents, do not go along a, a kind of linear line or a straightforward line. You know, there are episodes and moments the way in which ethnic cleansing even can be prevented or can be turned away or it can transform itself into genocidal violence. And, and, and it depends on the context. It varies from region to region. It varies from episode to episode, moment to moment. So uh, this is the way I see mass violence incidents, not only in the Middle East or in the Ottoman world, but also in other uh, topographies and geographies as well. Finally, Umit, uh, did your research provide any insight into those people who stand up and refuse to participate in the socially sanctioned killing of their neighbors? And has it given you any thoughts about how the next genocide can be prevented? Um, actually, it's... Uh, I haven't received so much feedback uh, from that aspect. So how genocide can be prevented? And first, it needs recognition. It needs acknowledgement. Now, Turkey and also uh, my fellow citizens back home in Aintab, they are so far away from acknowledging this, uh, uh, this crime, this collective crime. By the way, publicly, publicly, they do not, they are not willing to acknowledge this publicly or they are not willing to willing to accept it as a public knowledge but in their inside in internal conversations or conversation with me one-to-one encounter they are not hesitant or avoiding acknowledging it what happened to them they knew pretty well they learn it from their great-grandfathers and the old history they know they know that their our main neighborhood did exist in this city these houses, which turn, which which were transformed into turn into coffee shops, converted to boutique hotels, and so forth. There were Armenian residents, neighbors living in those places. They know this for sure, as a fact. But they do not want to articulate it in public because they are so afraid of the legal and economic ramifications of this acknowledgement. Well, that makes perfect sense, uh, <laughs> that, that reluctance. Um, and as far as prevention? For prevention, um, it starts, I think, with, uh, with, with memorialization of, of what happened to Armenians, remembrance of what happened to their Armenian neighbor, neighbors, and we should maybe uh, initiate a grassroots level kind of uh, uh, civil in initiatives to take and 
and we should change like a curriculum of Turkish history education system in primary schools, starting with the primary schools and so forth. And also, we shouldn't forget the fact that denial in Turkey does not only stem from or come from the state itself. Denial in Turkey is being so much supported and reinforced for society, different sections of society in Turkey. So that's why we need a really, really uh, a thoughtful and, and, and also uh, 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 a, a very analytical and a democratic kind of education system and, and democratic atmosphere and political climate in Turkey in order to discuss this matter, which uh, can open avenues for us to think about how to prevent the same crime wouldn't happen in Turkey. But for the time being, it's almost unlikely to carve out or create that kind of atmosphere in, the, in, 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 the, in Turkey, in the country, under this repressive political uh, atmosphere, unfortunately. Yeah, it, it is unfortunate, and it's a, a serious and chilling topic. Thank you, Umid, for taking the time to share your research with us. Before you go, tell us what's next for you. Thank you. Um, I'm working on two book projects now. Uh, one deals with the micro dynamics of restrain of violence and what micro mechanisms make restrain possible on the ground by focusing on a very interesting adultery incident which occurred in Adapazari in 1911. Now I'm changing my uh, I'm changing uh, my subject matter. I'm changing the uh, location as well. Now actually. For a long while, I have been working on how the violence was carried out by different sections of society. And now I'm working on how the restraint of violence, you know. That's what we need. Yes. (laughs) Uh, And what mechanisms make this restraint possible? And through this particular adultery incident, I'm trying to explain why intercommunal killings happen in some situations, but not in others. So... I'm, I uh, develop a kind of careful microhistorical research to reveal certain local factors that lead to restraint. Um, my other book project focuses on a genocide perpetrator, Mustafa Reşat Mimarolu, who emerged from a genocidal society and attained influential positions in post-genocide Turkey. This guy was the one who carried out arrest of Armenian intellectuals and politicians on 24th of April 1915. I examined continuation of genocidal regime in modern Turkish Republic and how genocides, such as this guy, Mimarolu, constitute core elements of new state by examining his life uh, and his relationships with well-known and prominent Armenian intellectual, Diran Kelekyan, who was arrested by his former student, Mimarolu, the same guy uh, from Darul Funun Shahane. So in doing this project, I want to show and substantiate the fact that Turkish Republic was founded by genocide perpetrators and these people climbed to higher echelons of the state due to their uh, connivance and contributions they offered for this criminal complicity. Well, lots of good luck with both those projects and they're, they seem to be a good balance for you, for your own, uh, for your own mental health to, to have both restraint as well as... Uh, I hope so. Yeah. Thank you so much for being on the show today, Umit. Thank you for having me, Rene. And thanks to our researcher, Bela Pasikov.
拜拜。